0: reading is from Isaiah 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. The unclean will not journey on it, wicked fools will not go about on it, no lion will be there nor any ravenous beast, they will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing, everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: And then picking up our sermon text in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Lord, we are gathered together here to sing of your praise, but also to see your face, to be transformed by the power of your spirit acting through your word. So we ask that you would do just that here and now, that you would act upon us uh, and lead us in such a way to act through us for the sake of your glorious uh, power. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. Thank you, Rachel. So this week, we come to the second appeal of what will be eventually six in uh, this prayer that Jesus illustrates for his disciples, how to pray. Uh, As Joel talked about last week, one of the most common things that I get the opportunity to hear as a minister uh, is I sit down with people and they will say, you know, I really don't feel like I know how to pray. Uh, it's actually, Joel seems to have some confidence with it. It's one of my least favorite questions because it's quite often that I feel like I don't know how to pray. It's not only that I, I understand where they're coming from, it's that often I feel like I am there with them, uh, unsure of how to pray. And as Joel showed last week, uh, it may be a little bit about where we start when we pray. Jesus starts his prayer with a declaration of God's glory and asking for the Lord, the Father, to continue to glorify himself. And with that out of the way, a very significant kind of place to start, the prayers about God and His glory, we see what He does next. So if we pray for God to be glorified, what do we pray for next? And it's just these three simple words Your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. So we're going to do 30 minutes on each of those three words. Here to get, I'm just kidding. Um, but it is a very short text, and, and you know, there's actually a tradition of preaching uh, where a lot of sermons would be drawn out of as many as two or three or four words. But at Grace, we tend to take larger chunks of passages for the opportunity to kind of walk through and see how the ideas relate. But Joel and I talked, and we, we felt like it made a lot of sense to focus on your kingdom come as its own idea, uh, I think there's a lot of times when we're praying the Lord's Prayer that your your kingdom come just flows into the next line in a lot of ways. Your will be done as if these are, are synonyms. And there's a lot of overlap in the ideas that when God's kingdom would come, his will would also be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, but... The more and more we thought about it, the more and more we thought about the way that the Bible talks about God as king and his kingdom, we felt like it was really worth spending some time to look into the idea of what is God's kingdom? Why would we be praying for it to come? And maybe finally, you know, what is the good of praying for it anyway? Why isn't it here uh, if it's so good for us so I, I don't know if you guys watched it this summer, but uh, April and I had the chance to—I guess—chance to sit down and watch through all of, of King Charles's coronation, and I, I was fascinated. But I was seemingly fascinated for slightly different reasons than the general public. i, I can't really remember who was there or or what they were wearing. Uh, I can't really remember who had the like right dress or the right hat. But I was absolutely—and I'm not making fun of you if you were—I just like can't. I don't have any fashion sense or like any sort of awareness of celebrity. Uh, so, so what I found so fascinating about the idea was that this was a worship service. You know, this was the, the Church of England doing what they understand to be their obligation as the church representing the state of anointing the king. And as I watched kind of step by step the prayers and, and the sort of beautiful ritual and, and all these sort of things, I, I felt... And, a sense of hollowness a little bit. And that's a very American thing to say, I understand. I know we had a war to overthrow the king, and so I should be careful here. But I felt a sort of sense of hollowness in it, and I'll try to explain where I think that came from, and maybe you felt some of the same thing. You know, despite all the beautiful ceremony and the rich history, there's this tenor in the proceedings that we're on the cusp of something transformative, something that... From this point forward, nothing will ever be the same again. You know, there was a regent, but now we have a new regent. It's the dawn of a new day. The world, it will never be the same because now Charles is on the throne. And it doesn't feel like that, does it? I mean, again, I'm not an English citizen, but I I haven't noticed a bunch of difference in the way that the things in the world are going uh, since the crown has moved from one head to the other. But if we pay close attention, especially to Jesus' ministry, especially to Jesus' words, and frankly, especially to the Gospel of Matthew, one of the things we will see is that whatever Matthew and Jesus are anticipating about the kingship that he's come to put into place, it's that everything will be different, that everything will be transformed, that nothing will be as it was, that every rock you turn over will be in a different place and have a different thing under it because of this new king who has arrived. So today, what I've hopefully come here to say, and if if you hear nothing else I say today, I hope you hear this, is that when we pray, your kingdom come, just those three words, we do it because when Jesus is enthroned as king, every broken thing about us and our government and our lives is restored. That when Jesus is enthroned as king, every broken thing is restored. You just heard in the beautiful passage that Rachel read about the arrival of this messianic king and the way that what was dead will be made alive, what was broken will be made right, that the highways that are dangerous because of robbers and thieves and lions will now be safe paths for God's people to tread. Everything will be different in the light of this new king. So let's look at it in kind of three phases, three, three questions, I guess. What is... As the Bible understands it, as Jesus understands it, what is the kingdom of God anyway? The, the second question will be, what, like, why isn't it here yet? What, what, is the, what is the blessing that's awaiting us? And if it's so good, if it's so grand, why don't I see it in place all around me? And then really the, the final question is going to be, like, so we long for this King Jesus who makes all things new and right. What's the point of praying for it? Why don't we do something about it? So those are the three questions. What is the kingdom of God anyway? Why doesn't it feel like it's here? Why are we asking for it to come? And then why would we bother praying for it? Can't we do something about it? And those are the three questions we're going to look at today. So what is the kingdom? So I'm not a political theorist, so I'm sorry about that. Uh, When I sat down to think, like, what is a kingdom, I immediately felt uh, overwhelmed by the possibility of, like, all these different governmental philosophies and the ways that people choose monarchs over democracies. And I got a little overwhelmed. But I came up with what I believe are three very simple aspects of a kingdom. Kingdoms have a king. So who is he? Kingdoms have a, a national identity, a shared culture. So what is this nation that the king is over. And then finally, kingdoms have a dominion, uh, a place that they are in charge of, responsible for, a place with borders and duration. There is a dominion to a kingdom. There's a defined place where it exists and it is in control. So what I'm going to try to look at together is, is what is God's kingdom in light of those three things? What does it mean that God's kingdom has a king and who is he? What does it mean that God's kingdom has a nation, and who are they? What is the culture of that nation? And then what does it mean that God's kingdom has a dominion, and where is it? So God's kingdom has a king. One of the things that can be really difficult in today's day and age when you approach the Bible is that more and more often, and and again, this is not old man yelling at clouds. I read the Bible on my phone as often as I read it on pages, uh, and I have an office where I can just like, sit there and read the Bible on pages, and I do it anyway. But one of the things that can be easy to forget when you're looking at your Bible on your iPhone or a computer screen is that it works together as a whole, that there's just a whole lot of connectedness. And when you pull up a verse on Bible Gateway, it does you the nice job of trimming off everything that came before it and trimming off everything that comes after. And it can really feel as if these things just kind of pop into existence, but when you hear Jesus talking about being a king, when you see Matthew talking about the kingship, the kingdom of Jesus, these things don't just kind of exist in a vacuum. And in fact, uh, this would be a lot of like the conclusion, the climax in a lot of ways, of the whole narrative of the Old Testament. And I want to walk you through that just a little bit, very quickly. In in Genesis chapter three, we're really familiar with the fall uh, of Adam and Eve. God's people are in the garden in in right relationship with him. The the serpent tempts them, uh, and and they fall into sin because of temptation. Uh, And God makes a promise to Eve that one day she will bear a son, and that son of hers will crush the head of the serpent. We'll read about that every single Advent, that there's this promised one yet to come. And from that moment, like three pages into the Bible, there becomes this kind of constant refrain and search for whoever that one would be, the one who would take the brokenness of the fall and rearrange it, make it right again, crush the head of the serpent, right? So Genesis 3, it starts, who is he? And all of a sudden, Noah walks onto the scene and you think, well, maybe it's this Noah guy. But then Noah oversees the flood and he falls into sin and you're like, well, Noah. And then it's Abraham and Abraham receives the promises and you're reading and then you're like, well, he's selling his wife to Pharaoh and he's not putting his trust in God and choosing to have the son that was promised through the woman it wasn't promised through and you're like I don't think this is right and then Isaac the promised son comes on and you begin to see it's not through Isaac alone that all these things will be made new and right and then it's Joseph and then there's the pharaoh, the prophecy about Judah you get where this is going Moses Joshua in 1 Samuel chapter 8, significantly, God's people get so impatient of waiting for him to reveal who this one is that they say, you know what, we're done with all this. Just give us a king. I don't, I don't want to wait for you to kind of bring about the one that's going to happen to this. Give me a man of action. Give us Saul. And the man of action is not the man to lead them through sin and death. But surely this one singing psalms and poems that is righteous and being persecuted by Saul, he must be the one that was always promised. But no, it's, it's not David. There's even a little Bible trivia guy named Zerubbabel who is the, the priest of the new temple when God's people return. And it feels like for just a second everything's gathering around this, this character Zerubbabel. Maybe he is the Messiah to lead us back into the promised land. And it just goes away. Each and every one of them dead in their own sin and then quite literally dead on earth, unable to overthrow the curse. But throughout it, you will hear prophet after prophet and many of these figures themselves saying there is one yet to come, a promised king. So who is this promised king? What what is the power, what is the office of king? How would we recognize the one who is to be king? Well, again, there are whole books written about this. I've learned so much from Katie and some of the ways that she teaches through the prophets. Like, there's just an incredible amount of resources to talk about all the different ways we would recognize the Messiah. But but I'll point out four. In Isaiah 35, which Rachel just read, we hear that this prophesied coming king will be on the ground to heal. He will make what is sick or dying well and alive. In Micah chapter 5, we hear that this promised king will come to judge. That he will be the one who separates what is wicked from what is right. And he won't do it just because he's powerful. He will do it because righteousness is in him. He will be the defining line of what is wicked and what is right. In Daniel chapter 9, we see one like a son of man who has come to save And as Daniel continues to describe throughout his dream, we see that this promised king will be the very salvation that God intends to bring to his people. And in Joel chapter 3, we begin to see that this king will come to reign. He will rule. It's not that he will be some sort of abstract thing, distant and beyond, but he will have his feet firmly planted, guiding and directing the nation of God's people. Heal, judge, save, and reign. And here we are right in the middle of Matthew's gospel, the famous Sermon on the Mount. And if you read throughout Matthew's gospel, it's so clear to you how much Matthew wants you to see that Jesus is the one who's here to heal as he engaged with those who are sick and dying, that Jesus is the one who's here to judge as he presides over very controversial theological issues, but also over the, the, the aspects of right and wrong in the mundane lives of the people who come to him for wisdom. That he is indeed the one to save, as we see in his crucifixion, the atoning work on the cross. And uh, you might think even most controversially, but that he is the one who is here to reign. And that's harder to see as this wandering nomad preacher in Israel seems to have nowhere to lay his head. But it It becomes clear as we look at some of the ways that he's interacted with. The unique thing about this king, and we got a clue of this uh, in the life of David, but his coronation, the thing that marks him as this messianic king, doesn't look very much like what we saw with Charles. It doesn't look much like this triumphal singing with beauty and robes and gems and jewels. His coronation takes part in kind of four phases, and and none of them are that. We all remember in the Christmas story where angels and shepherds will be the ones to know about, proclaim, and receive this coming king. Not the princes in their halls, not the loud blowing trumpets, but angels and shepherds out in the fields. Uh, Matthew and and the other gospels will record in Jesus' baptism the very words of Psalm 2 where God the Father is marking, anointing, which, which uh, Sarah read for us at the beginning. Psalm 2, this coming son uh, in whom he will vest and give the inheritance of the nations. Um, this kind of second coronation at his, his baptism. This third coronation, again, the one that's so obvious at his crucifixion. He says in John chapter 12, when he is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. What a turn of phrase. Because it's not that he is lifted up on this giant podium carried by slaves to sit on the throne and look down upon the people. No, he is lifted up on the cross, looking down on those he has come to die for and save. So angels and shepherds, not heralds, his baptism in the water alone with John and the Father, not in front of thousands, lifted up not on a dais but on a cross, And finally, in his resurrection and ascension, when he appears first to Mary alone and pronounces that he is the resurrected one and then ascends to the right hand of the Father, not looking to be worshiped in the moment here on earth by all peoples from all places, but returning to the right hand of the Father to rule and reign on our behalf. This is the king, the king that was promised. So if that's who the king is, that kind of king what might that tell us about what this nation is about a lot of ways to go here but i i think i want to ground it in, in paul's idea that there are three things that kind of remain within god's people there's faith there's hope and there's love so if there are three things that should define the nation of god's people it's faith hope, and love. We should be people of faith, faithfulness to God, people who believe to take God at his word, who who build their lives upon the rock of Jesus's accomplished work. That we would be a nation full of hope. And when Christians talk about hope, it's this fascinating thing, because the way that we use hope in our kind of dialogue and language is like when I was in seventh grade and I hoped Mary Nicholson would sit by me on the way home from the field trip, Right? Mary Nicholson didn't know who I was, but man, did I hope she would. I had no reason to think that would happen and it sure didn't happen, all right? But Christian hope is entirely something different. Christian hope, when it's talked about in the scriptures, is the assurance of this thing that is yet to come. My friend Matthew Bowerman talks about it as as, as receiving the joy of tomorrow today, that there's something out there in front of us that's so guaranteed and so assured that we can taste it, see it, experience it here and now. It's not something we just wistfully hope happens. It's a belief that what is coming will make up for all the ways that what is now is not enough for us. Hope. And then finally, Jesus will say over and over and over again that they will know that we are his disciples. That they will know that we are his kingdom by the way that we love. And we have talked many times about the way that Grace Fellowship seeks to love God, love one another, and love the community around us. This is this nation. In fact, in, in Matthew chapter 5, just a chapter earlier, uh, Jesus will say that uh, something really powerful in the Beatitudes about the kind of people that this kingdom will cause to rejoice. And I'll just remind you. He would say, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Whatever this kingdom is, it is a kingdom where people like that thrive, where people like that rejoice, where people who are bent low are lifted up. That is the identity of this kingdom, this nation. That's what it's for. So what's its dominion? Where do we draw its borders? So we've talked about it's the king. We've talked about the, the, the national identity. So, so what do we know from the whole Bible about what the dominion of the kingdom of God will be like? Well, first we know it's full of citizens. And, and early in the scriptures, we begin to think of this in terms of ethnic national Israel, the people who are born of Abraham's seed. But there, there becomes this hint uh, throughout the prophets, especially in Jeremiah, that there will be more to this Israel. That there will be more than just Abraham's uh, biological children, but that there will be a remnant of those joined in with the voices of the nation. God will be here to save them. We see in John chapter three where Jesus begins to explain how you become a citizen of this kingdom. And he says the com- most confusing thing to Nicodemus you must be born again. See, citizenship in this kingdom is not about being born in the flesh in a certain geography or a certain place, but those who have put their hope and trust and faith in Jesus, as we talked about in Confession Assurance, will have their sins forgiven. We will go through something we call baptism, where we are buried with Christ in his death and raised up to new life in him. That is being born into the kingdom. No longer born in America or the Philippines or wherever, you are born again anew into a new citizenship, the one of the kingdom. So its citizens are not obviously located by geography. They are recognized by the state of their heart uh, before the Lord. Where are its borders then, you might ask? Well, they're spiritual at first. We see in uh, uh, the garden when, when Jesus is coming to be arrested, uh, there are all these soldiers gathered around Jesus, right? And uh, they say, we're here, to, we're, here to, um, we're here to arrest Jesus of Christ, you know, Jesus of Nazareth. And, and, and he says, I am he. And when he says that, they all fall to their knees, hundreds of soldiers. And it's very obvious that the hundreds of soldiers surrounding this one rabbi where the power really lies. It is in Jesus. They could not take him unless he wanted to go. But he tells them to get up. He rebukes Peter for trying to defend him. And he says, now what brings you here again? And they say, we are here to arrest Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, that is I. And he goes. Uh, Pilate will question him. And he says, you know, all this being concerned for the emperor. Like, my kingdom's not of this world. I'm not a rival to the emperor. But the reality is, it's actually the emperor who's not a rival to him. Like, the emperor is the one who has these Tangential borders and governs over people's 40, 50, 60 year lifespan, but Jesus doesn't want that kind of kingdom. It's bigger, it's grander, it doesn't have those kind of borders. Um, so it's spiritual first, and then eventually physical later, as we'll see in the book of Revelation when all of existence will come under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. What are the other things that we learn about the dominion? I think the last thing that I would really want to point out is that it's eternal. Throughout the prophets, it's being said that this son of David, this son of Abraham, this promised king that would come, he's going to have an eternal reign. And this is fascinating in and of itself because it means he, he can't be, he can't die. That wouldn't go well for a king. So, so we need to answer like, where are we gonna find a king that lives forever? But beyond that, think about how difficult it is to run a nation, Every single one no longer exists, basically, and the ones that do won't at some point. Why? Because there are foes, there are rivals, there's corruption, there's need, there's scarcity, there's fear, there's loss. How can anyone govern forever in a world where all of those things exist? You can't. How can you hold people together when all of those things are at risk? You can't. See, the promise of the eternal kingdom of Jesus is not just that he's a great king. It's not just that we will all treat each other wonderfully and be this beautiful place to live. It's that the eternal kingdom means that all the things that break us apart and have broken us and are results of our brokenness will be gone forever. Only then could a kingdom be eternal, eternal citizens with no foes, no corruption, no scarcity, no fear, no need, no loss, no death. That's why we want to be in the kingdom of God. That's the promise. That's why it's hanging out in front of us. A perfect, righteous king full of grace and truth. A nation of restoration full of faith, hope, and love, and an everlasting dominion full of glory and peace. That is the kingdom of God. So if you're with me, you're probably thinking, John, of course, duh, yes, yes, that's the world we all want to live in. You haven't really answered my question. Why? Why doesn't it feel like that at all you said the king is here why doesn't it feel like that at all so let me start with the hardest part of that answer i don't fully know i don't know everything i would like to know about why it's not fully here yet why is not always territory we can draw on a map There are all sorts of things that I have lived and experienced that don't seem to coincide with this promised kingdom. I don't know what those things are for you, but if they're anything like the things that I've walked through, I know that it just can't be pulled together through a simple phrase or word. But I do know two encouraging things about this reality. Jesus will say over and over and over in the Gospel of John, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. An hour is coming and is now here. What does this mean? Uh, in the War of, of 1812, um, which is pretty famous because it's the only time the White House has been like burned by an international foe, right? Like, British soldiers actually burned down the White House. Um, There was a treaty signed uh, towards the end of the War of 1812 that made peace. And a few weeks later in New Orleans, there was a very bloody battle because news hadn't actually reached the soldiers on the British ships or the American soldiers that the war was over that everything had been finished, that it was decided, that there was no point to this conflict anymore. News had not reached to the farthest ends of the conflict yet. It doesn't make the losses any less significant. In some ways, it actually makes them more tragic and sad. But the outcome was not in doubt. And if you were there in that battle, you might think, we still might lose this. But the reality is they couldn't. The war is over. It had been decided. What Jesus is trying to tell us is that the war is over. It has been decided. And that does not mean in any way that we don't face foes yet. That the death throes of sin and death and the enemy don't still cause real pain here on earth to each and every one of us. No one would deny that or take that from you. But the reality is the war is won. News just hasn't reached The farthest edges of the earth yet, but it will. Second piece that I find really encouraging about this it's actually because Jesus loves us so much, in some ways, that he's yet to return. A time of repentance is here. When he returns, all of righteousness will be on display. Those who are not reconciled and new to God, as far as the Bible teaches, will be lost to him and to us. But while he restrains from that day of judgment, there's an opportunity for the world to hear the good news of the gospel. Is that sufficient for all of our pain and loss and confusion? Not what I'm saying, but what I am saying is, There is an opportunity for every day that Jesus doesn't bring the kingdom for someone who does not know him to be there with us. It's a mercy, an opportunity for those who are far off to be brought near. So it's not here fully. Again, I don't don't know with satisfying clarity why we endure the things that we endure, why the kingdom isn't fully, but I do know that an hour is coming and simultaneously is here Now, the joy we can borrow from tomorrow for today. And that when Jesus is enthroned as King, every broken thing will be restored. So, why isn't it here? Because the Lord will make it all right when it comes. So, the last question you know, who, you know, we talked about what the kingdom of God is, we talked about why it isn't here yet. Last question. What's the point of praying for it? Like, what does this all have to do with prayer? Don't we have our marching orders? Shouldn't we be bringing the kingdom here? Why would we go to our closet in private, shut the door and say, Lord, let your kingdom come. Like, don't I know how to live these things out? Shouldn't he be turning us loose to bring the kingdom here on earth? Here's my best answer. And I hope this will apply a lot of these truths to our our heart tonight. First, The Lord moves in and through the prayers of his people. Sometime, I'd like you to go back and read the account of Moses. When the people have sinned, uh, they've built the golden calf, and Moses goes to the Lord and intercedes on their behalf. He says to them, there are stiff-necked people uh and but they deserve your mercy lord didn't you promise weren't you the one who said you loved them and would be gracious to them that you would forgive them and you would bear with them wasn't that you god and the lord does show mercy there are a lot of ways to read that text did did moses remind god of something he'd forgotten i'm gonna go with no but there are many ways that the Lord receives a particular glory by doing the things that he has caused us to long for and ask him for, to reward the faith of his people that the world might see that we have not put our faith in something useless or hopeless or worthless. When we pray, we give God an opportunity to demonstrate himself as the God that he has promised to be. Prayer is a means that God uses to accomplish his ends in mysterious ways. But when we pray, that gives God the opportunity to demonstrate himself to be the person he's promised to be. The second thing it does, so he moves in and through the prayers of his people. The second thing, our prayers really transform us. They teach our hearts what to long for. The things that we ask for, the things that we make a pattern of asking for, the Lord will begin to knit them into our hearts. I tell our home group leaders all the time that obviously one of the best things you can do for your home group leaders or your home group members is to pray for them because prayer is actually the best thing you can offer. But it's even more than that. The best thing you can do for you as a home group leader is to pray for your people because what you will find is as you go to the Lord on their behalf, representing the love and compassion and care that you desire him to show to them, it's contagious. The things we pray for are the things we long for. And it doesn't just work in one direction. We don't wait to long for something to pray for it. If we will be faithful to pray, the Lord will be faithful to help us long. So we say your kingdom come in order to long for his kingdom. Third, it reminds us that it's his kingdom to bring. It reminds us that he's the one who has promised to bring about the kingdom. This was the kingdom that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, Solomon, Zerubbabel, none of them, not even close, none of them could bring to earth. And now here we are thinking, ah, you're taking a long time. I got this. You don't. We say your kingdom come because it's God who has to bring it. Imagine this with me. When we say, your kingdom come, we're asking for the day when the proclamations issued from the throne of glory are freely received by us. The day when the great king, we cheerfully obey rules and reigns over us. When we say, your kingdom come, we're asking for the day when as citizens of the new Jerusalem, we share in all of heaven's honors. The glory that belongs to the saints in heaven above belongs to us. For we are already sons of God, already princes of the blood imperial, already wear the spotless robe of Jesus's righteousness. Already we have angels for servants and saints for companions and Christ for a brother and God as a father, already. When we say your kingdom come, we are asking for the day when we share the honors of citizenship. When we come to the church as citizens, we have common rights to all the property of heaven. We belong here. These are our people and he is our God. When we say your kingdom come, we're asking for the fact that all things present or things to come, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 3, are ours now. As citizens of heaven, we enjoy its delight. What causes heaven to rejoice? Sinners who repent, us too. What causes heaven to rejoice? The glories of God and triumphant grace, us too. What causes rejoicing in the kingdom of God? The casting of their crowns and their riches at the very feet of Jesus, us too. Are they charmed by his presence, his face, his smile, us too? The joys of heaven are available in the kingdom of God. We also look and wait for his kingdom to come here and now. So when we say, let your kingdom come, what we are waiting for is the day when Jesus' throne is thrown as king. And everything that is broken
0: will be restored. Would you pray with me?